That's awesome. Thank you, Casey, for sharing that. And uh, last year, we, did, we had her husband, uh, Pete, here. And then afterwards, uh, we, were, we went out to grab lunch at Chipotle, and Pete was there. And we just ended up eating Chipotle with Pete, which was awesome, and uh, got to hear more of their story. And um, this is such a cool thing, because these guys uh, don't just do this themselves. They, they practice this. Uh, they do foster care with their family. And uh, I know for me growing up, uh, my, my parents did foster care. I have two adopted siblings. I have... Uh, biological siblings that do foster care and have adopted kids into their families. And so uh, just such a cool thing. And this all really, the whole idea of adoption came out of the first century when followers of Jesus uh, said, we're not going to let kids go. Uh, Every life has value. And uh, really, in the first century, it was not uncommon to leave kids if if it wasn't, uh, if kids had any kind of physical abnormality, or uh, if you wanted a son and you had a daughter, it was not uh, uncommon to just leave kids out to the elements. And uh, then followers of Jesus came along and said, you know what? Every life has value. We should take those kids and raise them as our own. And so the whole adoption idea and fostering idea comes out of the way of Jesus. So love what these guys are doing. And if you want to learn more, stop by that table. Uh, The other thing, uh, real quick before we jump in, is uh, Easter is coming. Uh, We have seven Easter services because uh, of just the size of this room. We want to make sure we can fit everybody. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Invite someone to join you uh, because people will say yes to an invitation at Easter when they might not say yes any other time of the year. Uh, And we have such a simple, easy, uh, practical way to not only invite them, but a a message that will be so easy for your friends to understand. Even if they've never been to church before, uh, they're going to really enjoy themselves at Easter. So I encourage you to invite somebody. And then when you invite them and you all go, here's the service we're going to, register, because we want to make sure we have a seat for you and for the friends that you're inviting. And so uh, just do that right on our website, westbridgechurch.com forward slash Easter. And it's got everything there that you need to know for Easter. And then uh, the last thing would be if you want to help us serve. We have uh, 56 kids environments that we're staffing for that weekend. So uh, if you'd be willing to serve at one of those services that you're not attending, that would be super helpful. And uh, that just means this. It doesn't sign you up permanently for the kids team. It's just a way of going on that particular weekend. I can jump in. I can serve one time in one of those kids areas at one of those seven services. And all of that is all in that same spot right on the Easter page. So check that out and uh, can't wait. We're looking forward to an incredible Easter weekend uh, in the next, well, it's like five weeks away. So uh, we are today in week three of a series called The Rest of the Story. Now, when I was growing up as a kid, my household, we had certain family rules. I'm sure you guys have some family rules in your house. And uh, they were pretty basic, uh, things that most families have. Uh, Things like don't talk back to mom and dad, right? Be respectful of your parents. Uh, uh, Don't... um, don't fight with your brother and sister. Don't hit them, right? Uh, be nice. Say nice things. Be kind to each other. Don't lie to each other. Don't lie to your parents. And all of these things, when you look at these rules, they all had this one big idea in common. It was behavior conformity, which is good to a certain degree. We need behavior conformity because when a baby is born, they don't, you know, they rely fully on instincts. But as we all grow a little bit older, as you grow into a child, we all need a little bit of behavior conformity to exist peacefully with other humans, And now hopefully as we get a little bit older, we recognize, okay, uh, I don't have to say everything that comes into my head, right? Not everything that comes into my brain needs to be expressed. I'm still working on that. Uh, That uh, there's certain things that not every desire I have has to be immediately satisfied because sometimes that can cause harm. So these are things that we learn. And we understand behavior conformity because to a small degree, it's what helps us live together in a civilized society, right? Uh, And when we think about it, religious settings often have a set of rules that are designed to help with behavior conformity. 
And so uh, for some of you, maybe that's why you stopped going to church. Maybe that's why you stepped away for a season uh, because you couldn't keep the rules or you didn't want to keep the rules or the rules didn't make any sense to you. And that's very possible. Now, I can tell you this. My wife and I both grew up in the similar type of church settings, and I'm grateful for uh, the foundation that was for me. I'm grateful for the churches that I got to grow up in and be a part of because they were very foundational and, you know, formational for my, my life and my faith. But as I look back on some of those, when I look at some of the practices, some of them were a little odd. Some of the things that we did, I, I remember thinking, like, why do we do that? Why do we say that? What is that rule really all about? There were some odd ones growing up. And uh, tuck that idea away for just a minute, and we're going to dive into one of the most irreverent and sort of paradigm-shifting things that Jesus ever said. One of, one of his uh, biggest statements that he made in his earthly ministry. And the problem with this statement is, for you and I, we're not a part of first-century first Judaism, so when we hear this, we kind of go, what's the big deal? But for Jesus' first-century Jewish audience, when Jesus said this, there would have been a huge gasp in the crowd. When Jesus said this, uh, his original crowd would have heard this and they would have gasped. Because uh, when you read this statement in context, it's really one of the reasons why the religious leaders turned on Jesus so quickly. And here's what he said. Jesus said this, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. <gasps> Yeah, so what? And we don't understand uh, why this is such a bold statement. But in the first century, the Sabbath was such a big deal because it was one of the original Ten Commandments. The Sabbath was such a big deal to them because uh, the Sabbath was connected for them to the holiness of God. And if you were to defile the Sabbath, you were somehow defiling the holiness of God. And so Jesus comes along and he says, you, you don't understand the heart of my Father. And the Sabbath, was not, the, the, the Sabbath was not made to be kept in and of itself. The Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. And, and as it turns out, what was true of the Sabbath was also true of the entire law of Moses. The religious leaders in that culture, and unfortunately, oftentimes religious leaders in, in every different culture and generation, get this turned around. And now let me say this another way just to help it sink in because it's like, eh, what the heck are you talking about, preacher man? Let me put it this way. Nobody has children, so there will be someone to play with the toys. Right? There's no couple that's sitting around and going, man, we have all these toys and no kids to play with them. Let's have some kids so that there will be people to play with the toys. It doesn't work like that, right? Toys are for the benefit of the kids, not the other way around. So when you think about the Sabbath and the statement that Jesus made, here's what Jesus is really saying. He's saying, God didn't create us so there would be someone to keep his rules. That's not what it's about. Rules always, always, always flow out of relationship that already exists, not the other way around. Rules don't exist to create relationship. You don't start with a set of rules and then say, we better have some kids because we got all these household rules and we don't have any kids to keep them. You have kids, and then as the kids grow, you start to go, hey, these are some guidelines. These are some boundaries. These are some rules that will be helpful so that our kids will flourish and live the best life that they can possibly live, right? To keep them safe. It's for their benefit. In other words, God's commands are for people because God is for people, which means God loves you more than God loves his commandments. 
That's really important. And when we get this reversed, people get hurt. When the system gets so reversed that the rules get priority over people, people get hurt. And religious leaders have leveraged this backwards for generations. And Jesus dives into this tension and Jesus stirs things up. And eventually Jesus would be arrested and Jesus would be crucified because he just wouldn't play along with the way that people were twisting his father's words. And when religious leaders used the law of God to manipulate people who were made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them they were on the wrong side of God. And this may be the reason that some of you, maybe you struggle with faith. Maybe you're watched online and you stepped away from the church. Maybe this was part of the reason. And I'm praying that today's message will penetrate your heart and that you will understand the good news of Jesus and what he came to introduce. And we're in part three of a series. We started this a few weeks ago called uh, The Rest of the Story. This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. This is an incredible story about how Jesus came into this world and Jesus uh, delivers this good news and and he makes this incredible statement and he came to reverse the order of just about everything. And we find this story being narrated by Simon Peter. Simon is one of Jesus' close friends and followers. He followed Jesus for about three years. He traveled with him. He heard everything Jesus said and did and taught. And he saw miracles and witnessed so many things. And so when Peter describes this, for about 30 years, he travels the Roman Empire and he's telling his story. He's he's telling people, here's what Jesus said. Here's what he taught. And I don't believe this because a set of religious writings told me this is, I'm telling you my experience. I'm telling you my story. And being that he was a a fisherman in the first century, he would have been uh, more than likely illiterate, definitely would not have known how to write. So we find him narrating this to one of his travelers and companions, and now he's arrested by the emperor Nero. He's in a prison, which history tells us he never escapes from. He he ends up being uh, executed by Nero. And before he's executed, he gives his story to John Mark. And John Mark is one uh, one of his traveling companions, and it's where we get, you know, if you look in the, what we call the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it comes to us as the Gospel of Mark or the Book of Mark. And then Mark travels to Alexandria, Egypt, and he, copies are made and distributed, and eventually uh, they get bound together with some of the other eyewitness accounts and uh, some of the letters that Paul writes and Peter writes and, uh, uh, and that uh, James, the brother of Jesus, puts together, and they, they get all bundled together with the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and it comes to us as the Bible. But don't hear this as the Bible. This is just the story of Jesus of Nazareth delivered to us, narrated by Simon Peter. And, and Peter wants us to remember and be laser focused on the fact that Jesus had one message. Everywhere that he went, it seemed that Jesus had the same message. Peter would say over and over and over again, he would travel around. And this is what his message was. The time promised by God has come at last. Jesus would say all of human history was hanging on this moment. Everybody's been waiting. Everything in the pagan culture, everything in the Jewish culture has been hinged on this one moment. And now the moment that you've been waiting for has come. And he would say this, the kingdom of God is near. That the kingdom of God is primarily not, hey, uh, put your trust in Jesus and then you can go to heaven when you die. That's part of it. And that's true, but it's not the whole point. The point is that Jesus has come here now, that heaven has come to earth, and that you can participate in it here and now. It is a way of living. It is a way of following the priorities and the values and the worldview and the mindset of this brand new kingdom. And the only response to that, Jesus would say, would be to repent of your sins and believe the good news, to turn in a different direction from what the direction you're moving, to face it and embrace it, and that when you do that, you will experience life to the fullest. And so... uh, 
if the religion that you were brought up in, if, if, if your idea of faith, if your idea of God, if your idea of church, if your idea of religion or whatever label you want to put on it, if it's not good news, there's a very good chance that you got the wrong version. And we're in part three of this story. If you missed the first couple of weeks, feels like you're coming in in the middle of the movie, you can go back and check out those first two weeks online. I'd encourage you to do that. Last week, we left off with Jesus calling a guy named Levi. We know him uh, in modern day as Matthew. Same guy, Levi, Matthew, and he was uh, despised by other Jewish people, despised by the Romans, outcast because he was a tax collector. So he was a traitor to his own people. He was uh, basically just a, a, a slave to the Roman Empire. And he was despised specifically by... Jesus' first four followers, who he called four fishermen, Peter, his brother Andrew, James, and his brother John. These were the first four guys that uh, Jesus called to follow him, and they're following him, and they're with Jesus, Peter tells us, when uh, he calls Levi. And he looks at Levi, and they stop, and they're in Capernaum, which is just north of the Sea of Galilee, and they stop, and they're looking at Levi, and I know Peter's sitting there going, I know, right? Tax collector. Ugh. Gross. And Jesus looks at Levi and says, hey, follow me. Be my disciple." And, and they can't believe this. And Peter's thinking, Jesus, are there no restrictions on who you will invite into this thing? I mean, you're just going to let everybody in? This is crazy. And it was so offensive to the religious leaders. And Peter doesn't tell us exactly the interaction. But Levi gets up and he follows Jesus. And I'm not sure if Levi, again, who we know as Matthew, I don't know if he's just feeling awkward or if he didn't know what the next step was, but he ends up inviting Jesus over for dinner. And so here's what we discover as we continue in these verses. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. Now, this is incredibly offensive on so many levels because if you're going to have dinner with someone, it indicates a certain level of friendship. It indicates a certain level of acceptance. It indicates a certain level of intimacy. And so the, the religious leaders are going, man, Jesus is eating with them. And it wasn't just Peter and the disciples. It gets worse it continues and says, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So you think about this. Essentially, Levi invites everybody back to his house. And so Levi's running his tax collecting office. He has people that work for him. There's scribes that are working. And he, he shuts down the office early. He's like, all right, guys, listen. Uh, Jesus is coming to my house tonight. I want everybody to come over. Uh, happy hour at my place. Bring the families. We're going to hang out tonight because Jesus is coming over to my house. And Jesus is being shadowed by the religious leaders, and they're watching him. They're watching his every move, and they're kind of watching to see how this is going to unfold. And they're following Jesus, and they follow Jesus over to Levi's house. And Levi goes into his house, and Levi's friends, these other tax collectors and disreputable sinners, go into Levi's house. And Jesus and his disciples go into Levi's house, and all the religious leaders stop at the edge of the cul-de-sac because they are not going to step foot on Levi's property, because to do that, they would be considered unclean. They consider Jesus and his disciples unclean at this point. And so Jesus goes in and he says, when the teachers of religious law who are Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're going, we are supposed to represent God to the people. And if he claims to come from God, why doesn't he hang out with people who also claim to come from God? Why does he seem to gravitate towards the most ungodly and the most unrighteous? And, and here's the thing. This isn't fair because we can't even get a, an appointment at Starbucks with him. It's like, but he's having dinner with Levi and these other sinners? What's with this guy? Who does he think he is? 
And when Jesus hears it, it's like, it's like they're outside the house. They're in earshot and Jesus hears it and he doesn't make any attempt to apologize. He just doubles down. He says this, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. At which point Matthew kind of looks up from his dinner and he's like, wait a second, are you calling us sick? And Jesus is kind of like, I mean, Levi. I mean, look at your friends, right? He's like, look what's going on. Yeah, and he's like, come on, let's be honest. There, there's something a little wrong with you guys. And for some reason, yeah, he says, you're sick. Look at, look at you and look at your friends. You're all sick. And, and they look at their life and somehow it wasn't offensive. Somehow Levi is ready to admit his own sinfulness. And then it says, I have, Jesus continues, says, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. At which point Peter and his friends look up from their dinner and they go, you called us. Are you saying we're sinners? And suddenly the gap that Peter saw between himself and his friends and Matthew and the tax collector and his friends and his employees, it wasn't as big of a gap as he thought. Peter started to realize we have a lot more in common than any of us initially realized. And Jesus says, everybody I've called is a sinner. I've not come to call righteous people. In fact, I've never met any righteous people. I've come to call everybody to this new way. Now, here's what's so important for us to understand. In the first century, nobody evangelized. There, there, nobody, uh, nobody went out of their way and said, hey, leave your religion and join our religion. We've, we've got the good news and, and you, should, you should be a part of this thing. It didn't work like that. In fact, uh, nobody who was Jewish tried to convert other people to Judaism. It just didn't work that way. In the ancient world, the gods were a lot more like apps. So it'd be like, hey, you need this done? We got a God for that. Oh, you need this done in your life? We've got a God for that. And so it'd be like, hey, you want your family to grow? Well, you want your crops to grow? You, you want to be victorious in battle? No problem. We got a God for that. And so you wouldn't ask people to abandon their gods and follow your God. You would just add another God to your list of gods. So you go, oh, well, I've got, I mean, I've got this God. This is the God I pray to for rain. This is the God I pray to for healing. This is the God I pray to for victory in battle. You've got a God that does something? Great, I'll add that one on. I've already got six idols on the mantle. We'll add yours into it. Here we go. And that was just the way that the ancient world worked. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, he was introducing something that was completely brand new. He was not adding on. This was not another God in the list of gods. Jesus' pursuit of sinners and his pursuit of the unrighteous, it illustrated just how disruptive and just how revolutionary this good news would be, this new kingdom would be. You didn't have to be born in a specific part of the world. You didn't have to uh, understand certain customs. You didn't have to speak a specific language. You didn't have to grow up with a specific heritage. Everyone is invited. And he went out of his way to make sure that everybody knew they were invited. And so to make sure we understand this, Peter then tells us one of Jesus's favorite metaphors. Jesus wanted us to understand, listen, I've not come to tweak something that's in place. I've not come to adjust it or make it a little better. I've not even come to, to add a religion or a God to your list of religions and gods. I have come to replace everything that had been in place. This, is, this isn't an and, this is an instead of. And so Jesus would continue and he'd say this. No one would patch. <laughs> Excuse me. No one would patch old clothing with new cloth. 
And this would have been something they understood. That clothing was expensive. They didn't get rid of clothing in the first century. They would just patch it. And so when you had clothing that was old, it had already kind of gone through the shrinking process, you wouldn't take new clothing and then patch it to that because then when that patch shrank, it would tear the rest of it and it would make the, the tear even worse. And so they kind of like, yeah, duh. Like, we know this, Jesus. Like, wh- what's your point? He says, the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And they go, yeah, we know. <laughs> what's your point? And then he would continue. He'd say this, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. And so this is how they preserved wine. They put it into a wineskin. But he says, if you've got new wine, you don't put it into an old wineskin. The wineskins, they stretch with the new wine. And so the problem is you put new wine into an old wineskin. The wineskin's going to burst. That gets ruined. The new wine gets ruined. It's just a huge mess. And they go, yeah, we know. What's your point? <laughs> and his point is that this new teaching of his, this thing called the kingdom of God that has come near, this brand new worldview, this new way of seeing the world, of seeing people, of seeing ourselves, it was like new cloth and new wine. And the mental image of torn cloth and burst wineskins, it punctuated the impossibility of mixing and matching the old with the new. You cannot blend Jesus's new message with their current cultural system. Jesus would say, I have not come to blend anything. You cannot add what I'm teaching to what you already have. You cannot pour what I'm teaching into an old container that you've already developed. You can't mix and match this brand new kingdom with the system of Rome. You can't mix and match this brand new kingdom with the worldview of the Greeks. You can't mix and match this brand new kingdom with the religion of Judaism. This is not an and. This is not something that is added to your list. This is an instead of. This came to replace everything that had been in place. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. Jesus would say, new wine calls for new wineskins. New wine calls for new wineskins. It calls for a new container. And so if the message of the good news of Jesus, if his kingdom, his priorities, his values, his, his worldview, it was this entire, if this is the new wine, then the new wineskin would be this whole new gathering that he would call the church. And his word for church wasn't actually church. That's, that comes later on. That's actually a German word that got translated. The original word is a Greek word called ekklesia, which means a gathering or an assembly or a group of people. So a church has nothing to do with walls and a building. A church has everything to do with the people who are gathered around the one thread that is woven through all of us, the one thing that we all have in common. is This is a group of people universally around the world who would be gathered around this idea that Jesus has come, that the time has come, that the, that the kingdom of God has come near, and that we get to be a part of it. And anybody that's gathered around that idea is a part of this thing called the church, this new gathering of people built around that idea. And we are the container for this new message, this new wine. That means a gathering of people or an assembly of people who have built their lives around the priorities and the purposes of this new kingdom. And so if you're a part of a church, it's you. It's us. We are this container. We are the framework for the brand new teaching of Jesus. And then before we can even digest any of that, like we're still thinking through that, Peter just jumps into another story. This is the fast pace. He's narrating this. He's like, I got to get this out of my head and download it to you. And it's a story that has another Sabbath controversy. 
And so we continue the story in John, uh, Mark chapter three. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Now, this would have been very embarrassing for this man. We don't know why his hand was deformed. It doesn't tell us if he was born that way. Oftentimes it would be because someone broke their hand and it just it didn't set right and never grew back correctly. And so for some, some reason, his hand is deformed. Probably hides it in his cloak because it's kind of embarrassing. Maybe he wears really long sleeves, you know. Just doesn't want to be seen because this would be an embarrassment. And since it was Sabbath, uh, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. They're following Jesus now because, again, Mark, uh, you know, Peter's told us and Mark's recorded that Jesus' fame has spread throughout the region. And now people uh, from the Pharisees and the religious leaders have traveled up from Jerusalem up to this region of Capernaum around Galilee. And they're, and they're following Jesus and they're trying to see what he's going to do because he, he's really threatening their political system, their religious system. And they're watching him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they plan to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Because in first century uh, sort of uh, Judaism, the Sabbath is such a big deal. And the first century application of the law of Moses said this, you are not allowed, it is actually a sin to help someone on the Sabbath. Now, if someone is dying, right, they need your immediate attention. They're, they're drowning, they're hanging off the edge of a cliff, then you can help them. But if they just need some help, if they just need some medical attention, as long as it's not, you know, potentially fatal, it would be a sin to help them. You have to wait until the next day. Because they took this command in the Ten Commandments of honoring the Sabbath so extremely literally that they couldn't help someone. It was considered a sin. So Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. To which he's probably just like, I'd rather not. Right? Like, he's like, I don't really want to be your sermon illustration today, Jesus. That's all right. But he does it. He goes and he stands in front of everyone. And then the man is standing there. So imagine this. They're in a synagogue. And he's like, hey, I need a sermon illustration. Join me on the stage, right? And then he turns and he addresses everyone else. And he addresses his critics. He turns to his critics and asks, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Great question, right? In other words, what is God's purpose in giving us the law? Why did God give us the rules? Is our mission to honor and preserve the rules for the sake of the rules, or is there something bigger going on? And then Jesus would ask this question. Is this a day to save life or to destroy life? Like, what, what do you guys say? Is this a day, the Sabbath day, if it's connected to the holiness of God, is this a day to save life or is this a day to destroy life? Is this a day to do good or is this a day to do evil? And it all goes back to the very first verse that we read where Jesus says, uh, you know, the one I showed you right in the beginning of this story, he illustrated what he had taught. Is the law of God for the benefit of God? Or is it for the benefit of people created in the image of God? Now, I'm grateful, again, thankful for the way I was raised and the churches that I got to be a part of. But if I'm being honest, there were also some times I was left with the impression that the rules that we were given were for the sake of God. Like somehow there were some of these rules that God needed me to keep for his sake. And not necessarily for my sake. Like somehow there was just certain ones and I was raised like, you just got to keep them or God's going to be angry that you didn't keep his rule. And I'm like, why? What's the point? And Jesus presents a huge paradigm shift. He would say, is the law of God for the benefit of God? Or is the law of God for the benefit of those God loves? Because if, they, if they're for the benefit of the people that God loves, then that means that people take precedent over the rules and over the law. Children aren't for the toys. The toys are for the children. Does the law permit good deeds 
on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life, or is this a day to destroy life? Now, do you remember when you were a kid, and you would ask your parents a question, and you knew the answer, but you were going to try to get away with it anyway? Like you knew, like the rule was this, you can't go to your friend's house until you finish your homework. And you knew you hadn't finished your homework, but you go to your parents and you're like, hey, can I go to my friend's house? And you knew that they knew the answer, so they ask you this question, is your homework done? And you're like, I know the answer to that, but if I say no, then I'm basically saying that I can't go to my friend's house. I'm acknowledging it, so I can't say that. So you're hoping that they just won't recognize it and that they'll just like let it slide by. Like, hey, can I go to my friend's house? Well, is your homework done? And you know the answer is no, and they know the answer is no, but if you answer it, then you can't go, so then you don't answer at all. You just sit there like this. And this is exactly what's happening with Jesus and the Pharisees. He says, so what's the day for? If it's somehow connected to the holiness of God and we're violating God's holiness to help someone, so is this a day to do good or is this a day to do evil? And... They know, okay, how do we answer this? Because if we say this is a day to do evil, well, that's not really attached to the holiness of God. If we say it's a day to do good, then he's just going to do good, and then we're giving him permission to violate this whole system we've created. So they're stuck. So they just wouldn't answer him. They just went, Jesus, we don't, we don't want to answer you because we condemn ourselves if we answer you, and this is a no-win situation for us. And how did Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to people who apply God's law in such a way that it hurts the people God loves? How does Jesus respond when religious leaders use the law of God to hurt those created in the image of God? See, here's what Jesus does. He looked at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. <laughs> He's actually angry at their response. They wouldn't even acknowledge what they knew to be true. And then he says, said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. He's addressing his critics. He's addressing his critics. The man's standing there, hiding his hand, you know. Jesus says, take your hand out. And he goes like this, and his hand is completely restored. And the response of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and Jesus' critics is so completely over the top because they understood what we oftentimes miss. They understood how disruptive and revolutionary this was. They understood Jesus was not coming to just add to. This was not just a mix and match. He had come to replace everything that had been in place. And so, at once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. What an extreme response, right? It's like, okay, look, like, shut down his operation, send him back to his hometown, uh, you know, run him out of town, get your team to run political ads against his team, something, but you're going to kill him because he wants to do good and heal someone on the Sabbath. But they understood what we oftentimes miss. There was no way to blend the kingdom they were trying to preserve with the kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. The two were incompatible. They had a framework they had a mindset, they had a worldview, they had a system, they had rules, they had laws, they had their way of doing things, they had a view of God, and they were trying desperately to defend it, and they were trying desperately to preserve it, and they could not blend that with the kingdom and the mindset and the worldview that Jesus had come to establish. The Sabbath, the law, the rules, God gave those for the benefit of mankind, 
not for the benefit of the Sabbath. God is like a good parent because he loves you more than he loves his rules. He loves you more than he loves his commandments. That his rules didn't pre-exist relationship. They flow out of relationship. God is a, is a loving father who says, now that I've created you, like I, I love you. And so if you'll live life this way, if you'll stay within these certain boundaries and these guidelines and live life this way, if you'll prioritize the things that are the priorities of my kingdom, you're going to discover that your life will flourish. You're going to discover life to the fullest. And here's the key, and this is where it gets so backwards sometimes in churches and, and, and pastors and people who do what I do, is sometimes the message comes across like this, hey, you better like keep God's rules and then you can be a part of God's family. But that gets the heart before the, cor- the cart before the horse, Right? That's going, hey, uh, I've got some rules, and if you keep them, then, then, you know, we better have some kids to keep the rules. But we follow God's way of living, and we follow God's rules or his boundaries or his guidelines, not so that we can be a part of the family, but because we already are. God invites us to be a part of his family in all of our mess. He invites Levi. He invites Matthew, right? He invites these sinners, and then he goes, hey, by the way, you're sick, and you need some help. And they're like, yeah, that's true. But you don't follow God's rules in order to be a part of the family. You follow God's rules and God's way of living because you already are. And then God goes, this is just how this family operates. Now that you're a part of the family, I want you to live and, and live out that identity that you have as a part of God's family. So a couple of quick applications here, and then we'll close. Number one, if you are a sinner, and you are, you are invited to follow Jesus. If you are a sinner, and I am, we are invited to follow Jesus. That means this, uh, beginning today, just start from wherever you are. Just start from wherever you are. Whatever you got going on, if you're someone who is willing to acknowledge, like Levi did, something's wrong with me. Something's up with me. Something's broken in me. I fall short of my own standard, let alone keeping God's standards. I can't dig myself out of my own hole. I can't be the husband I want to be, the wife I want to be, the parent I want to be, the friend I want to be, the, the employee I want to be. Like, I fall short and I can't dig myself, I can't fix me on my own. If you can come to that recognition and that realization, then this invitation is wide open to you. You are invited to begin to follow Jesus and you just start from wherever you're at. And if you had going on in the first century what you got going on right now, Jesus would pursue you, he would seek you out and he would invite you to follow him. And so you're invited to follow Jesus. Wherever you're at, whatever you got going on, just begin to move in his direction and follow him. That's what we see modeled with Levi and his friends. And then secondly, if you've already made the decision to follow Jesus, if you're following him, if you're a follower, you're invited to yield to Jesus. That means this, that sometimes we start to follow Jesus and then we go, ah, yeah, but I know, Jesus, you got kind of this guideline and this way of living life and this way of doing things, but I kind of like doing it this way. But if you're following Jesus, it it means that I yield to him, that whenever my worldview, whenever my way of doing things, whenever my system bumps into Jesus' system and there's a contrast between the two, that I go with Jesus. I say yes to his way. That's what it means to follow. You're not saying yes to a law. You're saying yes to a person who left us with one simple command. Love others as I have loved you. Treat others as I have treated you. It's not a list, it's not a law, but a person who came for you and invites you because he loves you. And this isn't just about believing in something. It's about following someone and doing something, submitting your will to the one who created you and the one who loves you, not so that you can have a relationship with him, but because you already do. 
When you trust him, you say, God, I trust that your way of living is the best way to live, even when I don't always understand. But if my way bumps into your way, I'm gonna go with your way. Now, last thing, then we'll close. The really cool thing is this. Levi, who again, we know as Matthew, he got the opportunity once he started following Jesus to record a lot of what Jesus said because he had scribes and, and as he's following Jesus, he records a lot of the teachings of Jesus. We get the longest recorded teaching in what we know now today as the book of Matthew or the gospel of Matthew. And so again, when you look at the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's Matthew or Levi who Jesus invited to follow him. And so somehow he's recording something that Jesus said, and it's so impactful, and maybe because it meant so much to Matthew when he first heard it because of his background. Jesus, one of the things Jesus said that Matthew records is this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Now, the heavy burdens Jesus is talking about is the law. Because over time, the law of Moses grew, and every generation added their own interpretation and they'd add their own interpretation, their own interpretation. It was called a yoke. And a yoke is something that you would put on oxen to keep them moving. And so a rabbi would have a yoke, and their, their students, their pupils would go, I'm going to pair myself to you and your interpretations of the law. And so you had all these different rabbis with different yokes, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And all, you had more interpretations, and then another rabbi would come along and add his interpretation of that interpretation, of their interpretation. And so you had this massive amounts. And it became a heavy burden to the people. So here's Jesus' response. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus would say, if, if, the, if the, the religion, if, if the law, if the rules, if it's become such a burden to you that it's actually crushing you, then it seems like you got the wrong version because the message I come to give is life-giving. The message I come to give gives rest to your soul. The message I come to give actually sets you free. It actually helps you to flourish and live the kind of life God created you to live. That's why when he would say the kingdom of God is near, he'd say, repent and believe this good news. It's good news. And if the version of faith that you were taught, if the version of faith that you were taught by a pastor, by, by, a, by a priest, by a parent, if that was anything but good news, it's possible they were trying to pour this new wine into an old wineskin, an old container, and it just made a big mess for you. Jesus did not come to tweak something. He came to replace everything that had been in place because the time had come. The kingdom of God had come near. So repent and believe the good news. Face it and embrace it. And when you do, you'll experience rest for your soul. So I want to invite you. If you've never said yes to following Jesus, I want to invite you to say yes. And you can begin right where you're at, no matter, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what mess you feel like your life is in, you're invited to follow Jesus. And if you're following Jesus, I want to invite you to yield to him. Whatever your worldview, whatever your system, whatever your, your way of seeing the world, if it's in contrast to the way of Jesus, maybe it's time to shift that, to say, Jesus, I want to follow your way. If you've never said yes to the invitation to follow Jesus, just say yes as we close with this prayer. God, Please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I'm so grateful that you never walk away from me. And so I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us who are following you. May we not just follow you in words. May, may it not just be a belief in your existence. But may we reorient our lives, yield our lives, our worldview, our priorities. May they line up with yours. 
And when we do, may we experience freedom, rest for our souls, and may our lives point people to the good news of your love and your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.